Well, happy Easter. Thank you all for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church uh, into this sanctuary. Uh, what started out with a bloody Roman cross on Friday, we now get to celebrate the reality of the empty tomb that Jesus burst forth and ushered in this whole new reality. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer for all of us, including the person on the stage here, is that our hearts would be warmed by the reality of the resurrection, that they would come alive in new ways, perhaps coming alive for the first time if you're here wondering and kind of just trying to sort through what it is that you believe. If you're somebody that walks in today and you're like, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, I pray that your hearts would be warm to the reality of the resurrection, that we might all marvel at just God's grace and his goodness toward us. So again, thanks for gathering here this morning, for bringing the church into this space. If you're new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege and joy to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. For those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the the church into your living room or dining room or wherever you happen to be watching from. And so I want to get into this resurrection account this morning out of Luke chapter 24. So I want to invite you to please turn there. Uh, There are Bibles in the pews uh, this morning. You can also scan the QR code that's in the the pew uh, in in front of you. That'll bring up uh, this menu where you can click sermon notes. The text will be there as well as anything I put up on the screen uh, this morning. There's some space for you to be able to to take notes uh, there to follow along. But I want to go ahead and read this. And again, if you don't have a Bible or you've got one that's written in some very outdated language that's hard to follow, please take that Bible home with you as a gift. It would be our joy to have you take that. So uh, hear these words. So we heard the earlier account in the ver- first part of chapter 24. And now we get verses 13 to 35 is what we're going to look at. And know this as I read this to us this morning that there are numerous accounts, all right? Luke is a historian. He's writing this gospel account of the inspiration of the Spirit. And there are numerous accounts between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension some 40 days later. And literally, there's hundreds of people that saw Jesus, interacted with Jesus, all right? We don't have time to get into all of that. But just know this, Luke had no lack of content from which to share, And the Spirit guided him to share a couple particular stories, a couple particular accounts that we get in chapter 24. And one of them that God thought particularly important for us, not just the people back then, but for us here this morning on this day celebrating Easter in 2023 is this story that's entitled or referred to often, On the Road to Emmaus. So hear with me now God's word beginning in, it's chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, 
And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word for us this morning. And so what I want to do for a few moments is look at this. And I want to ask you to imagine what you would have been feeling if you were traveling on that road to Emmaus. Early on, we're introduced to these two travelers. One gets a name later in the account. But one of the things we're going to see initially that I want to look at in verses 13 to 17 is there's this sorrow, this sadness, all right? There's a particular mood. There's like this melancholy. There's this heaviness about this moment. And it's understandable when you think about all the things that they had been hoping and dreaming about, and now that has all seemingly been dashed. And so there's just this weightiness. And they've left Jerusalem, and they're traveling to this place called Emmaus. And I don't know about you, but like, if I go on a one-mile walk, I'm like, ooh, okay, I'm good, right? That means seven miles. That's no short distance, especially with a heavy heart. And I don't know the particulars, but I have to imagine that there was lots of just processing going on, and they're trying to figure things out, and they're sharing their emotions, and they're, they're talking with these you know, with one another, and there are probably times of just silence as maybe all they heard was just the sound of their feet shuffling along that dirt road. And just feeling this weightiness and feeling like all was lost. And we read this description in verse 17. What I think is so fascinating is it tells us just prior to this that Jesus came alongside them. Now, They don't recognize him at first, all right? And we don't have time to get into all of this about the changed appearance of Jesus in his resurrected body. But just know this, at this time, God has kept from them the identity of Jesus. But know this, I think this is a huge thing we need to see in this text is God always moves towards the brokenhearted. God moves and he enters in. He comes near us, he draws near us, all right? We see this over and over again that God, in fact, would come become one of us. I mean, this is how Christmas is tied to Easter, and these stories go together. And what we see Jesus doing is coming alongside these weary, heavy-laden travelers that have had their hearts broken, their hopes dashed, and they are just feeling the weight of this moment. And Jesus moves to walk alongside them. 
And Jesus is continuing to do that. I believe Jesus is doing that right here, right now. That what we're meant to experience is not just to cognitively take this in and then leave and think about, okay, how can you go apply certain things, as helpful as that might be. But the Lord is here present with us, like right here, right now. And the same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and dwelling within us right now. All right, And trusting that God's spirit is going to bring comfort. I don't know the particulars of your story, but you're traveling a road, you're walking along. There are things that are heavy on your heart. You know this, God is coming near. And you may doubt that, you may not believe that, but here's what I do know. You're here this morning. Let that at least bear witness to the fact that he has something to say to you. And then it tells us, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And just look at that description. They're kind of stopped in their tracks. And it says, and they stood still. So they'd been walking, they'd been making their way slowly to Emmaus, and it says, they just sort of stopped. And they just stood there sort of in this moment, and it tells us, looking sad. It's because they were sad. And there's this deep weight that they're feeling. But friends, what we see here with these friends on the road to Emmaus, one that's named Cleopas, the other we don't get the name of, what has happened in this moment is they are not living in light of the resurrection. Jesus had told them it was going to happen, and we'll look at that more closely in a moment. But the question that is really being posed to them is being posed to us some 2,000 years later is, are you and I living with a resurrection perspective? Are our hearts warmed by the reality of the resurrection? Or is our perspective so shaped by just circumstances and our hopes and aspirations and dreams What would it look like to say, I want to have a resurrection perspective? That's the invitation here this morning. Are you and I living with that resurrection perspective? And these friends on the road to Emmaus, Jesus comes alongside, not to shame them, but he's going to interpret for them. He's going to help them understand. He's going to give them a resurrection perspective. And so ask yourself, are you living with that? You have certain circumstances and difficulties and things that you're facing. And if you're one of the few in the world right now that maybe doesn't, like it's coming for you, right? Like that's just the reality of this world. And so what does it look like to have a perspective shaped by the resurrection? And if I could speak for just a moment, if you're somebody that is here and you're like, I don't know if I actually buy any of this. I doubt that I got dragged here. Somebody told me there were donuts. That's why I showed up. Like, hey, great, man. Like, I I love it. I'm so glad that you're here. But allow me for just a moment to speak to this, because I I think one of the things that can happen, and I think this is a a valid, even like statement to make, is that you might look at this and say, okay, well, resurrection perspective, sure. But that's a giant leap of faith, and I'm not sure I'm ready to make that sort of leap of faith. And I, I think it's worth stating for us as, if you're a Christian here this morning, it is a leap of faith. We, it's a faith that we have, right? Like, so we can't deny that. We can't look away from that. But I would put before you that actually everybody, regardless of worldview, philosophy, religious background, how involved you are in a church or not, any of that, like everybody is leaping. Everybody's always making a leap of faith. And I'll speak to that more in just a moment. But as it pertains to this account, and these are things that I've repeated over the years on Easter, but I keep coming back to them because I'm like, hey, I think there are credible reasons to believe the resurrection is true. And yet know this. It's possible to have some kind of intellectual credibility, and I think that's important. But God is wanting to do more than just kind of give you the brute facts of the resurrection. 
right? The tomb is empty. That could be historically verified. doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, there's all kinds of questions that could come up. We have to know how to interpret and understand the facts of the situation. But there are a few things in the text that was just read, all right, that I think are worth considering again. And maybe to summarize it very quickly, it would be to pay attention to the women that are mentioned in the text, the witnesses that are spoken of, and this whole deal of them walking on the road to Emmaus. And so at one level, we are introduced in this account that it was the women who were the first to the tomb, all right? We read that earlier in Luke 24. It's again mentioned as Cleopas is kind of laying out for Jesus. He doesn't know it's Jesus at the time, right? Like, hey, here's this account of what had happened. Now, Luke is a historian. And the reason he's recording it this way is because this is how it happened. But if you were seeking to make something up, you would never in a million years, like if Luke was like, hey, let's get together. I got a story. We're going to say Jesus rose from the dead. Come along with me. We got to get this together. You would never, ever, ever. No way, no how would you write into the story that women were the first eyewitnesses because nobody would have believed them. A woman's testimony was not valid in that time and that culture. Now, that's not right. That's wrong. But that's the reality of that time. And so the only reason it's listed this way is because that's actually how it happened. It's what I believe to be true. There's also this mention is there's this incredulousness, right, about these men on the way. And they, Jesus asked them, like, what are you talking about? And they're like, for real? Like, you literally, like, you haven't heard, right? Like, it, they just can't comprehend it. And they literally are speaking to the fact, and other passages will speak to this, like 1 Corinthians 15, that over a given period of time, everybody knew that Jesus had been killed. Everybody knew the tomb was empty. Now, there were different interpretations as to what happened, but that was a verifiable fact. But again, if the resurrection's not true, why would all of the disciples, the 11 remaining, all give their lives for the cause of a lie? It doesn't make sense. So again, I think there's some credible reasons to believe this. And maybe one last thing, this sort of theory tends to pop up around this time of year. It's sometimes referred to as the swoon theory. And it literally means this, that Jesus, all right, had the flesh ripped off of his back with whips that would have had pieces of bone and metal to the point that his entire back is just bleeding. It's completely raw. Then a crown of thorns are put on his head, shoved down into his brow. Blood and sweat are running down. He's forced to carry the horizontal beam of the cross on that back, all right, there that has no skin left on it. And then nails are put, spikes are put through his hands and to his feet. And he's hoisted up onto the vertical bar and it's dropped like a thud into the ground. And there is Jesus. And with every breath, he's having to push down on his feet in order to fill his lungs. And the few words that he could speak, the words we looked at on Good Friday, the amount of pain he would have endured, of all the nerve endings and everything that's been damaged, all the pain that he's feeling. And you think about the swoon theory is this. Well, all that occurred, oh, and a spear was thrust through his side, all right, up into him where blood and water poured out, all right, completely puncturing him, comes out the, back, out the, the other side. Still, he was put into the tomb, and somehow, some way, he had enough strength and energy, he had actually just fallen asleep. He'd gone into a coma, but he actually awakened and then had the strength to move the stone out of, you know, in front of the tomb. And in this account, what does this have to do with walking? He's now in good enough shape to go on a seven-mile jaunt. Like, it is incredible if that happened. 
So I think even this just proves a bit. It's worth at least considering, like, okay, if you don't really think that he died and there was just this swoon theory sort of thing that you buy into, how is all of this happening, all right? Because I'm worn out after a two-mile hike with none of those things having happened to me, right? This is seven miles. And so, friends, I think it's worth just considering those matters. And if you've got doubts and questions, I am, I'm so glad that you're here. Bring your doubts and questions to the Bible, to Jesus. Spend time in that. And one of the things that I think this speaks to and where everybody is making a leap of faith is this. We live in a time and a culture, and I think there's some really beautiful things where we want to fight for justice. We want to fight for the the dignity of all mankind, the fact that we're made in the image of God. But friends, it is only the Christian story. I would plead with you to consider this is only the Christian story that even allows or like explains that, like why would we seek to live in a way that loves our neighbor and that? Like the rest of the stories that are out there are gigantic leaps of faith that don't have any way of explaining this world. Only the resurrection gives us a motivation to love and care about matters of justice and peace and beauty. Because if there's no resurrection, then it literally is just the survival of the fittest. Hear these words out of the book, Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. He says this, speaking of the leap that everybody is making, when secularists, secularists endorse human dignity and rights and the responsibility in order to eliminate human suffering, they are indeed exercising religious faith in some kind of supernatural transcendent reality. To hold that human beings are the product of nothing but the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, but then to insist that nonetheless every person has a human dignity to be honored is an enormous leap of faith against all evidence to the contrary. And so I would ask you just to consider those things. So everybody's making a leap of faith. I embrace that. I acknowledge that. But I believe the resurrection story not only is credible to believe, but it actually makes sense of everything, all of the desires that we have. And so look with me now at verses 18 to 24. In the midst of this kind of this heavy mood, this sadness, there is a misunderstanding or a mistake that these two begin to explain, like in this section reveals to us really where things have gone off course for them. So if we look back over verses 18 to 24, it says them. One of them named Cleopas is identified and he speaks up. It says, he answered him, are you the only visitor visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So he's just like, really? Like, where have you been? You just can't quite fathom And then as the conversation continues, here's the key insight. This man, part of his sadness and his fellow traveler is they had particular hopes and aspirations. They had hopes of redemption, but not the redemption that Jesus came to bring. They had certain hopes and dreams and ways they wanted things to go. And his heart is revealed in what he says to Jesus. As Jesus kindly follows up, asks him some questions, explain to me. And in many ways, Cleopas does this remarkable job of sort of like laying out the story. And yet there's this part where he clearly misses it. And I think it's not to point at him and be like, oh, I can't believe you missed this. Like we all miss this but in different ways. Verse 21 says this. Here's the revealing part. But he had hoped, it says, that he was the one to redeem, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So he he speaks 
with great vulnerability, right? To, to hope, to open yourself up to that, like it is a vulnerable place. And so we'll give it to him. Like they, he had been vulnerable with this. They had hoped, all right? And now they're dealing with the after effects of that because they're like, things did not go the way that we wanted. And it's not bad that they had hopes and that they had desires, but it was misguided because it tells us the hope was what? In a redeemer to what? To redeem Israel. And they had no categories for somebody that was a promised Messiah that would come and then be put to death, all right? To be redeemed or to need a redeemer means this. It means to be purchased, to be freed, to be liberated. So it's a recognition that there is an enslavement that is happening and I need to be or we need to be redeemed from the situation. And so for Cleopas and the friend traveling with him and so many others, The hope had been this, friends. I need a redeemer, not for my sin that I'm enslaved to, but to get rid of the Romans. If we could just have the liberation of our nation, if we could have things get back to where they used to be, that is where his hope was. And that's why there's this heavy mood. It's not just because Jesus had died. It's because they had particular hopes for redemption. And Jesus, in the way the story is playing out, wasn't able to deliver things for them. But it raises this question, friends. Do you and I see our need? So our particulars might be different. We might not be thinking, yes, I'm looking for somebody to redeem Israel. But you and I are all hoping and praying and living in a way that speaks to our need for redemption. Like there are certain things we think that we have to have. There are certain things that we pursue in this world. And when we pursue those things, the Bible speaks of this as idolatry. When we pursue them as an ultimate thing, that thing begins to enslave us. In fact, a helpful way to think about this is the language of addiction. And so you take something that you pursue, all right, and maybe it's your career, making a certain amount of money or getting certain grades or whatever it happens to be or a relationship, and you get that thing, all right? And it's good and it's right and it's satisfying. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the same way of a substance that initially produces this high, eventually it doesn't quite deliver in the same way. And bit by bit, you just need more of what you previously had. And the lie that the enemy uses is to say, if you just had more money, more influence, more notoriety, right? If you had more people that that liked you, if you were in better shape, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, if you just have more of what you already have, you'll be happy. And yet it's this downward spiral because it never can deliver and we end up stuck. We end up in a spot where we need to be redeemed for our sin, for our rebellion of worshiping all these things other than the God of the universe. And God in his kindness has sent Jesus as a redeemer, not to redeem Israel in a nationalistic sense, but to redeem humanity from their sin. Years ago, I read uh, a very helpful book called Addictions and Grace by Gerald May. Let me read to you a portion of this. He gets at this idea of how key it is to understanding our human condition that we all live as addicts. He says, finally, I realize that for both myself and other people, addictions are not limited to substances. I was also addicted to work, to performance, responsibility, intimacy, being liked, helping others, and an almost endless list of other behaviors. 
And there's nothing on that list that we would say, oh, yeah, that's breaking a commandment. No, those are good things. But we can get enslaved to them. He says, I also learned that all people are addicts and that addictions to alcohol and other drugs are simply more obvious and sometimes tragic addictions than others have. To be alive is to be addicted. And to be alive and addicted is to stand in need of grace. He continues, and it's because of our addictions, we will always, friends, we will always be storing up treasures somewhere other than heaven. And these treasures, they will kidnap our hearts and souls and strength. Have you ever thought about it that way? These things that we pursue, they are kidnapping. You are enslaved. I'm enslaved to these things. And so he says at the end, in reflection, my self-esteem crumbles as I sense how truly out of control I am. I am in the clutches of the enemy. And the enemy, it is not out there in circumstances. The enemy is clearly myself. So how are we going to get freed from that place? Now, friends, this is the good news. This is what Resurrection Sunday, what Easter is all about. And so look with me. Jesus says, oh, I know what you need. What is going to get you out of this, this mood and bring this, this joy is not your nation being redeemed, all right, and getting rid of Rome. I'm here to redeem you from your sins. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were enslaved, and I've come to free you. I've come to liberate you, and let me show you how that's going to happen, all right? Let me tell you what this story is all about, because at this point, did you notice? Cleopas has listed a lot of the right facts, but he hasn't rightly interpreted them. So look what Jesus does in his kindness, all right? Pick it up in verse 25. It says, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones. And now again, this language, this is not to shame them. It's like, I can't believe you. He's just, there's a kindness in the way that a parent would come alongside a child and know that they've just brought harm to themselves because they've made a foolish decision. There's this empathy. There's this sympathy. There's this kindness. And he's like, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He says, friends, you need to understand Good Friday if you're going to appreciate what is happening right now. And he reminds them, and he shows them through the storyline of the scriptures that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We can never get back to Eden where everything was perfect because we're in the presence of God because God is holy and God is just, and we cannot be in his presence with our sin, our brokenness, our treason. But what Friday was, was this celebration that Jesus took all of our sin, all of our rebellion, that it all flowed to him, and the wrath of God was poured out on him so that all of his righteousness could flow toward us, that we were in darkness, that we were enslaved. This is why Paul would write on the other side of the resurrection, the ascension, Paul, who was dead in the sin and trespasses, even though he was highly religious, Hear this, he would write after encountering the risen Lord. He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've been liberated by Jesus. What, his, what happened, his work on the cross. The, it's not about the nation of Israel. He's saying you've been brought into the right kind of kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. And friends, forgiveness is always costly. This is why Jesus had to die. We know this, right? 
Like if you go out after the service and you find that like somebody has like dented your car and they say, hey, I'm sorry, I backed into you, right? And like you have this moment, like, well, there, you know, there's a fun Easter, right? And you, that, that ends up taking place. Like if you say to the person, hey, don't worry about it. It's no, it's no big deal. Okay, that's great. And they might think, hey, happy Easter. You're the best ever, right? And they might drive off on their way. But at the end of the day, you've got a damaged car. Like there's a cost. And if you choose to go and get it fixed, well, what? You got to pay for it. That's how forgiveness works. It's always costly. And now you think about an infinite number of sins for all of humanity, for all time. How is that going to get paid for? It's only God when God enters into the story. And then what Jesus does, verse 27, he says this, let me give you, he says, the most epic Bible study ever. All right? It's probably a good thing they had the seven-mile walk, because I think this would have taken a bit of time, right? But in beginning with Moses, which is a way to say the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? That's what Moses wrote. So beginning with Moses and the prophets, functionally, he's saying, like, hey, what we know is the Old Testament. He interpreted them. He didn't just list the facts, but he began to interpret them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They don't yet know that it's Jesus. I mean, how great that we get to kind of view this, right? And what is so wonderful here in this account is Jesus could have, because he does this in other spots, he could have said, hey guys, it's me. Look, oh, the nails. Oh, hey. Oh my goodness. I didn't notice it was you, Jesus, right? Like he could have done that. But in his kindness and his grace toward us some 2,000 years later, he didn't do that. Why is it a kindness and a grace? Because he opened up for them the same scriptures that you and I have, the same access that we have. We may not have Jesus here standing before us or walking with us on this this road in flesh and blood, but we do have the scriptures. And the scriptures tell a story about why God was going to have to punish sin and how we were never actually going to be able to do that on our own and why God would have to send one who would crush the head of the serpent's Right? Why there was going to be this storyline of redemption that is God paying for our sins by God himself dying on the cross and then rising again three days later, proving that he had conquered Satan, sin, and death. It was done away with forever. He's like, hey, I want to tell you that story. And friends, that's the same story that we're here to celebrate. Now, I don't make any, you know, I can't pretend to be like, and I'll lead a Bible study like Jesus. No way, Right? But it's the same resource that we have, and it tells the same story. And so those of you that have been a part of Crosspoint for any number of years, you probably are aware of this. When we do child dedications, uh, one of the gifts that we will give to the families that are dedicating their children is a particular children's Bible. And it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. You may have seen it sitting here for a moment. Um, if you buy it today, you can get it for $9.99. I get a 50% commission. No, that's not true, okay? Um, <laughs> All right, sorry. Church jokes about money, maybe not the best thing to do, but anyway, okay. So, um, but in this, we give this away to the families. And I literally will say this every time. I've been saying it for years. Some of you are like, yeah, we've heard this for years. You could probably repeat it. Um, but basically saying, I don't care if you have kids or grandkids or not, you should go get this. You want to understand the storyline of the Bible? Get this book. You can pretend it's for a kid. I don't care. This book will help you understand. So let me just read to you the opening pages. What this book is getting at is what Jesus is doing here on the road to Emmaus. Hear this introduction about the book, this story that tells us about this amazing gift. And may, by God's grace, it warm your hearts. May we come alive to the resurrection as we hear this read. 
Here's the description. God wrote, I love you. And he wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. And he wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like and to help us to know him and to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail and the way red poppies grow wild or the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too. And he wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible, friends, isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. And other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. And the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes and sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. And at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace. He leaves his throne everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's this baby, there's Jesus. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. This is what happened on the road to Emmaus when he was at table with them. Then they get into this home. Jesus, as the host, says the blessing. and says he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Why this moment? When we can speculate, I read a couple of commentaries. I thought this was fascinating. The motion, the hands to offer the bread. Perhaps that was the first time they had seen the nail marks in his hands. We don't know for sure. But in that moment, God revealed himself. Jesus revealed himself to them, and then he disappeared But the puzzle piece, like it had come together. And then they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? May your heart come alive. May it burn with passion for what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished for you. He was sent on a rescue mission. It is a love story to get you back. He left everything. He emptied himself there on the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And now is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Listen, for the joy set before him, the joy was to get you back. If your heart hasn't come alive yet, may today be the day where it burns, where it comes alive. The fact that God loves you, that he's pursued you, that Jesus has died for you. And so friends, look with me at these closing verses, 32 to 35. What is the response Well, it tells us very clearly in this moment, right? So they have their eyes opened, and immediately it leads to mission. And so it tells us 
this as we look at verses 32 to 35. It says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? All right, well, we talked. And then they rose the same hour, which we've been told it's already late, all right? They've already walked seven miles and they're like, we're hitting the road again. We gotta tell this story. And so seven miles back, all right? Seven miles back to Jerusalem, they rose that same hour and returned, and they found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, he's appeared to Simon, and then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. They returned and they told the story. Friends, this is the mission that we get to participate in. And so to close our time here this morning, what we're going to be doing next week is we're starting a brand new series through the book of First Thessalonians called Rise. We want to look at the implications of the resurrection, not just someday in the future, but right here, right now. And we want to tell resurrection stories. And so I want to share with you, I want you to watch this short video. And we've got some friends of ours that are telling a bit of their resurrection story. This is what mission looks like as well. It doesn't need to be told perfectly. We don't always have to have all the right words, but we can tell our story. And know this. Our resurrection stories, every last one of them are a miracle because we were dead and we've been made alive. And so friends, watch and hear and be encouraged. May your heart burn more with passion for what the Lord Jesus has done. Hi, my name is Kira and this is my resurrection story. My name is Jeff and this is my resurrection story. I was very blessed at an early age to be to give my life to Christ. Um, both of my parents had became believers, um, given their life to Christ later in their life, um, but that was before they had me. So I was given the amazing gift of growing up in a Christian home. So uh, growing up, I lived in a split home, a split household. Uh, parents got divorced when I was young. Um, that's relevant mainly because self-reliance was paramount to anything else. And a casualty of that was we didn't talk about emotions, like, at all. Um, so it was kind of this lonely road. Uh, although we were in it together, it was a bit of a lonely road in that, you know, you kind of suffered silently. I think being a, you know, being a Christian for me growing up came with a lot of pressure and disappointment in myself that... You know, I'm not as good of a Christian as my friend or, you know, I, I grew up with solid Christian friends. But instead of letting that grow my relationship, I kind of just let it act as a comparison for me. I kept comparing myself to this narrative that I needed to be at a certain place at a certain age or I needed to be at a certain job or um, make a certain amount of money. And, you know, as much as I tried to kind of buckle down and do it on my own, I just kept falling short and short. You know, that led me to a place where I was just trying to get numb um, pretty much in any way I could, either through activities or, or even like healthy things like working out or going to work. It's about 2016. Uh, I tried everything I could and uh, had like a, a mental breakdown practically. It wasn't until like late 20s that I, you know, have really notice these things and that I want to find, you know, want to find that fire that I didn't ever feel like I had. And knowing that God has still had this beautiful plan for me, despite me feeling like I wasn't good enough or wasn't deserving enough. A lot of the, the verses in the Bible that just resonate with me are just about how, you know, our struggle 
produces perseverance and more faith in him. And I think through the struggles that he's brought me through and dealing with infertility was one of the biggest things that I think I think God brought that in my life to draw closer to him and to, you know, be a testimony for him. In late 2016, I started dating my uh, my now wife, and um, she was a member of Crosspoint. And she's like, "This is it. This is where we're going to decide that we're not going to work because you you're not of faith, and it's important, and especially when kids get involved." And so, um, but she didn't know that I had gone through all this inner turmoil, and I was like, kind of softened up for this moment. I think the hardest part for me with the way I grew up is being so like taught self-reliance is submitting to God. Like, I think that's the hardest part for anyone not of the faith, especially not growing up in the faith. Is like, But the moment I recognized that I was broken and found peace in that was the day I started to learn like God's character. Honestly, finding this church is, and meeting the people here have been such like such a blessing to me because going to a Bible study and having everyone in the room say like I don't know what that verse means either is just was amazing to me I had never had that kind of just honesty in a room full of women and so knowing that other people struggle too and other people still don't know the Bible perfect and they don't know every verse in the Bible was just something that was just so comforting and reassuring. I've heard the gospel before, but I've never understood God's character. And I think that was a turning point for me to be like, oh, someone would sacrifice for me, especially in so many situations in my life where people should have and did not and failed. Um, So just that took some convincing. But as we dove into the word and as I heard the sermons and saw the family and the community, all the things that I never had, it was really eye-opening. And I was like, no, like, I am a child of God. Like, Jesus is my Savior, and He would sacrifice for me. And that's that's the day my life was resurrected. So. Although I never had this kind of just moment in my life that it was, I found God, and, you know, that was it. But God's always been there. But it was through the pain, through the struggles, that He's really shown Himself, even though I— you know, got baptized at like six years old and I've, you know, almost 30 and I finally feel like I know what I'm, what I'm doing and that it's, you know, I'm I'm having that relationship that I've always desired. Well, amen. Let's hear it for these folks. hard to see with the lights, but Jeff and Kira, wherever you are, thank you for telling your resurrection stories. Um, it's beautiful. My heart is warmed by that to see and to hear testimony, right? Like that God is at work. And so friends, I'm gonna, as we close here, just want to ask you, encourage you, like, what's your resurrection story? Like I said, maybe you're still sorting that out. And today, maybe, maybe it's the day that you surrender to Christ, as you just heard in that, that video. If you're looking for guidance, even like, what do I pray? Right? There's no magical formula or anything, but there is. If you even go to the, the sermon notes, um, on our, on our website, if you click on that QR code there, would even bring it up. There's a prayer for salvation. Just some words to guide you in that. 
Maybe you're somebody that came in this morning and you're like, listen, like I've been walking with Christ for a long time and there's some difficulty in it. There's some joy in it. There's all this range of emotions. But I know this, like our hearts need to be warm. May your heart be warmed this morning and may you be compelled to go and tell of the reality of the resurrection. And so, church, let me pray for us down. I'll give you some instructions and how we'll continue in our service. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace. Thank you that the resurrection is true. Thank you that the resurrection is continuing to happen, that you are creating a people, God, for yourself. And it's our just great joy to be part of your family, your work that you're doing. Thank you for your work of resurrection in our lives. God, I pray for any that have not experienced that yet. God, I pray that today is the day that they move from darkness into light, from death to life. May the power of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead raise my friends here that may not know you. And God, I pray that for all of us, I pray we would not lose sight of how marvelous, how glorious, how amazing your grace is. Jesus, we thank you that you've interpreted the story for us, that it's all about you. It's always been about you. May we now just be caught up in a greater worship of you. May our hearts burn. May we just have this assurance. May our hearts be strangely warmed, as John Wesley spoke of in his conversion, Lord, that we have come to know that we are loved that we've been forgiven, and that we've received your grace. And so God, work for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.